Welcome to Small Talk, a podcast hosted by nurses where we explore the Boston Children's Hospital community through conversation. My name is Denise Downey, and I'm the Nursing Professional Development Specialist from the Emergency Department. Today, our program is going to focus on our child life specialists, and we're going to talk to some of our colleagues and find out about the work that they do in the incredible environments that they work in. So, Steph, I'll give you a moment to introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. My name is Stephanie Cummings, and I am a nursing professional development specialist in our clinical education informatics practice and quality team. And I'm very excited to be here today in celebration of March, our Child Life Month. So very excited for that. And I will hand it over to Olivia and you can introduce yourself. Perfect. Hi, everyone. My name is Olivia Brooks. I am one of the child life specialists at Boston Children's in the emergency department. I have been here at Children's for about a year and a half, and I started in the ED, and I am still loving my role in there. Uh, my name's Megan Gallucci. I am a child life specialist up in the medical surgical ICU. I've had kind of the honor of working a whole bunch of maternity leave coverages. So back when it was called Nine South and cardiology, I worked on Nine Northwest for a couple of years, and I've been on seven and eight BERT now for just about six or seven years. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Pilar Lopez Ramirez. Uh, I am at the Barta Elliot facility. I transitioned from main campus after 14 years uh, starting the Charlotte Specialist Program at the perioperative areas. I have been here now for five years at Martha Elliott. It makes a total of 19 years at BCH. Hi, all. I'm Lakeisha Garcia, and I've worked at BCH for almost 18 years. Um, I started working jointly on the infant toddler surgical floor, and I was the first child specialist with designated hours in the NICU. I did that for about six years, and then I transitioned uh, to the dialysis unit, and I was there for 10 years. And now I am at Martha Elliott Health Center in Jamaica Plain, working alongside Milagros, and I've been here for almost two years. That's great. Thank you all so much for being here. We really appreciate your time, and we're really looking forward to hearing from all of you and learning more about your role. And obviously, like I said earlier, we're really excited to celebrate all of you and all of the hard work that you do in honor of Child Life Month, which is March. So very excited to have you here with us. And I was hoping that you could share with us a little bit more about your role. What are some of your responsibilities um, and what does a day in the life look like for each of you? Um, so Megan, I'll have you start if you would mind. Sure. Everyone in child life, I, our days kind of look a little different, which is a really exciting thing to be able to talk about today. Really in the medical surgical ICU, every day looks totally different, which I think is why I like it there so much. Usually the day starts with rounds and just collaborating with the psychosocial team in order to know what's going on. But really, it's kind of a little bit of everything. So we do see a lot of patients and families who have faced either an acute escalation in care or have faced a trauma or some bereavement work in the unit. And that's kind of what a lot of our work is focusing on. But then we also get to balance so much of that out with a lot of our 
post-operative patients who are coming up after surgery and just need a little bit more of that TLC to understand kind of what's going on while being in the intensive care unit. So the day-to-day looks totally different, but it's my favorite part, I think. I couldn't echo that more from the ED standpoint, which is something that I do love about child life as a whole is that our goal is all all the same and our passion for the profession is all the same, but what our days look like from unit to unit to satellite to main campus can look completely different. I know in the ED how I typically introduce myself to patients and families because the rural child life specialist can kind of go over someone's head pretty quickly. It's kind of a foreign title. So I like to tell kids and families that I'm kind of like a teacher for the hospital. I help to make sure they know what's going on today during their visit. I make sure they're informed about their care. They're ready to take on whatever interventions and procedures are heading their their way. And I'm going to be there each step of the way. A lot of what we do in the ED is procedure preparation and procedural support. Um, We are fortunate that we get to be at bedside for a 52-bed plus some unit, and we do a lot of IV prep, stitches prep. We are involved in traumas. We are involved in a lot of social situations in terms of sexual assaults. We work really closely with our behavioral health patients that are boarding for higher level of care. So just like Megan said, our days look very, very, very different um, hour to hour, day to day, week to week. And that's what's exciting about our units is that you don't know what's going to walk into that door. You're constantly refreshing your skills. And in the ED, we really get that wealth of medical knowledge that we are so eager to learn about. Lydia, we speak on you. You know, when I first started to introduce the role of the trauma specialist in the perioperative program, I, as I was the first trauma specialist, you know, that I was in the surgical, uh, in the surgery, surgical areas, uh, if I just would say to a parent, you know, I am a trauma specialist, they will be like, what? You know, so time they, they, exactly, they were not sure what I mean. So I would tell them that I was a child development specialist, you know, helping their child with any preparation support, distraction, and, you know, exactly. And they, and because they already saw me bringing something, you know, for the children to do during the waiting time, they are like, oh, okay, we get it. Yeah. So uh, translating to Marta Elio, you know, uh, our responsibility, day-to-day responsibility here, we are involved, you know, with immunizations, throw a nose, nose ulcers, blood draw, suture, putting in and staple removal, catheterization. You know, we get consult for patients with behavioral plans. We help in assist families and patients, you know, the escalation, distraction techniques, coping mechanisms. We assist children with sensory needs. You know, if we have a child, you know, in our team that is having surgery or procedure that is going to main campus, we connect with the child, especially, or when you have seen, you know, sometimes if our patients we are going to the ED, we connect with you guys. Mm-hmm. We also do patients, you know, we get a lot of referral for a patient helmet and also we celebrate same day births. Anything, Lokisha, anything else you want to add? 
Well, um, I was just going to say, um, again, yeah, every day does look different. We do try to help as patients are coming in to provide them with something to do just to, again, normalize the environment. And also we often help with a lot of vital signs, especially if we have patients with different sensory needs or, you know, are on the spectrum. Sometimes the vital signs, what we're starting with can be pretty, you know, challenging or scary. And so we definitely help our clinical assistants there. And then as Milagro said, once settling them, we will check in if needed. And then we are utilized for a lot of the procedures that happen at Martha Elliott. I actually didn't know that you facilitate communications if someone has to come to main campus for ED or for surgery. I'm just wondering, like, what does that process look like? Is it a phone call? Are you putting a note in the system? How do you communicate with people when you're in a satellite location to the main campus? Yeah, it may look different. Sometimes, you know, we have urgent care in areas here, and sometimes the child need to be sent back to the main campus to the ED, you know, sometimes according, according to, you know, the case, you know, sometimes it's a quick phone call to connect with the child, especially sometimes it is less urgent, you know, I will send uh, an email. Yeah, so different ways, you know, we can communicate it, how fast, you know, need to be done. I think that's like the really nice part about our department. We are an ever-growing department here and at the Satellites. We're a very big team and myself and Milagros might not really cross paths in person that often, but through these sign-outs of patients, we are still able to connect clinically and continue on like a working relationship, which is really awesome. And being able to get sign out on any patient coming our way that has already met child life, already kind of got an introduction to our services. Milagros is able to fill us in in the ED as to what was working um, over at Martha Elliott. What wasn't working? What did we struggle with? Sometimes family dynamics are really important to know. So we really rely on each other for back and forth of patient communication. Yeah. And I want to just add. The Zoom chart, you know, we are under consultations and our clinical documents. So mm-hmm. even if it's not something that, you know, it's a transfer, but let's say we helped a patient through an immunization and we know some of the things that has worked well for them, we chart on that. And then anybody in the institution, you know, can look for that consultation, child life note and know kind of what works for that patient. So it's not just inter-colleague um, you know, communication, but within the institution. I feel like that can be such a helpful cheat sheet for like the mm-hmm. night team or on days like weekends, if there's someone that's not present, I always say like, check out my note for the coping strategies that we used on this patient. It could be really helpful. And it's great to educate staff. I feel like in the fact that we do have notes where to find them. I love that Lakeisha because it really is something that we try and say, Hey, check out our notes. There's some really good information that are gonna, that's going to help you guys. And I feel like we all wear different hats throughout the day, but so does the team that we work with. So to be able to empower someone else to be able to kind of pick up the tools when we can't always be there is really helpful. So I love that so much. Yeah, that's great. I think that's really an important message to get out to our colleagues that, you know, these notes do exist and they can be really helpful when we're implementing them, but maybe weren't able to talk with you directly. So that's really great. And I'm excited to hear more about that. So thank you. I am also interested to hear how is it that you got involved in this role? To your point, not a well-known role out in the community. So just out of curiosity, how is it that you learned about it and how did you get involved? It's a really good question. I feel like for me, 
I always thought it's funny that Olivia talks about introducing herself kind of like a teacher because a part of me loved children and always saw myself working with children in my future um, when I was in high school and kind of doing some of that digging. And I thought, you know, maybe I'd be a teacher, but that didn't feel right. And I thought maybe I wanted to be a nurse. I love the medical settings so much. And that didn't feel right either. And I also had some experience with grief as a child that I always felt passionate about supporting families through the grief process um, and helping children understand and being included in that conversation. And I just did a little bit of research and found out about child life and it kind of started my passion and I was able to kind of go from there. So it was a little bit of exploration in a couple of different fields and landed me there. Did you know of any child life specialists at the time? My parents went to a college in upstate New York that had a very small child life program. And so they had mentioned, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called child life. I don't even know if that was even the name of the program at the time. And I ended up doing a little exploring. And for my senior project in school, I created developmental play kits for Hasbro because I live in Rhode Island and was able to present it in front of their child life team and learn a little bit more about the program. And it's really what kind of helped me really sink my teeth into that passion for sure. That's great. That's really interesting. Um, Olivia, how about you? How did you get into the job? Kind of by accident. <laughs> um, I was similar to Megan in terms of I always knew that I wanted a child-focused career. I loved school settings, was never a fan of the hospital setting. So it's very ironic to myself and everybody that knows me that I work especially in emergency department. So I thought that I was going to go into like guidance counseling, adjustment counseling, school psych, something in that field that I tested those waters during undergrad and realized those weren't my waters. What really was my first true introduction was I think my senior year of undergrad, I was the president of a club on campus that was called Wadier Mellon, which many people know as a very popular nonprofit organization. And through this college club, we were able to post these very special days for kids in the Boston area undergoing cancer treatment. And I was basically kind of peered with a kiddo in a family who were receiving care at that time here at Children's. And we put on a whole Build-A-Beard party for him, his family, and his friends. And it was a really magical moment for him, but also for myself and my crew. And this kiddo wanted to donate all of the Build-A-Bears to his unit here at Children's, which was really special. And mom put me in connection with his child life specialist. So basically, it was just we were coordinating back and forth the drop off of the beers I'm here at the hospital and she was lovely and basically gave me a very quick Google search of what is child life. And from there, I kind of went running with the topic, just like Megan. I did all my research, started volunteering, and many years later, I have wound up here. Sounds like such a full circle moment for you too. Very, very full circle. <laughs> Definitely. I love that. Um, how about you, Lakeisha? So I always knew I wanted to work with kids and I thought I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. And then when I was in high school, I thought maybe a child psychologist. 
I'm the oldest of four girls, and my sister, when she was 13, um, was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And so she received her care at Mass General Hospital. And at the time, I was just starting um, at Tufts University, and uh, Mass General Hospital and Tufts are on the same train line, on the red line. And so on the weekends, I would come in and spend time with my sister to give my parents a break um, so that they could go home and be with my other siblings. And I met an amazing team of child specialists. One was Kara and another named Heather. And they basically helped my sister be a teenager in hospital and learn how to cope with the things that she was going through. And um, um, they helped me learn how to be a supportive sister to her. And um, basically, I felt like they were my career pioneers. They helped me figure out what this amazing, yeah, amazing field was. And I wanted to be able to do what they did for my family for other families. So that's how I learned to child life. That's such a powerful story and we love it. And it sounds like you had really great role models and mentors that helped guide you into this role. And you're going to make me cry. Um, I wasn't expecting that. That's okay. It's part of, it's a part of our role. We feel all the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> what a powerful story and how you got to where you are. So thank you for sharing that with us because it's obviously very emotional to you, but wow. Thank you. Milagros, how about you? How did you get into the child life role? Well, it's a combination of what has been said. Uh, I was in Venezuela and I was in college. So I we have five years of college degree and I was doing project working on child abuse and I had the opportunity to go to one of the pediatric uh, hospitals there and during that time I got to work uh, closely with the psych team and they also in this hospital they did had child life but they they had a little like a playroom that they called the little school for the kids who were hospitalized so that opened totally a new world for me. So once I graduated, I also had the opportunity to work in a general hospital, working part-time there, and I was I was in the family program. So what I did was, you know, support to newborns, mom talking about lactation, you know, the importance of breastfeeding and uh, like a sense of stimulation for the, the newborns, like a how to meet their, you know, milestones and that. And when I was working and so I have two part-time jobs and when I was working in the pediatric hospital one time we have this a child five years old and she was from the Gujara and they came to to Venezuela because that was you know the the surgery she needed to have uh, was really complex she ingested in an acid that burned her esophagus and, you know, she spoke English and our English at that time, my English at, at that time was very basic, but she would come to the, the playroom area and play and like a, a week later, she had this huge surgery and then, you know, complex surgery. And then she was in the ICU and from the medical point of view, she was doing really well. But from this uh, psychological point of view, she was having a lot of repression and she was not really moving forward. She, she was really getting, you know, delays in her recovering from the psychological point of view. So the chief of the department wanted me to, then you meet her and 
when was wasn't she involved in you know in doing activities and I told her yeah so they wanted me to start working with her in the ICU because at that time you know 10 20 years ago or a bit more you know we were having some we in the ICU parents were not allowed in the hospitals in Venezuela so it was a lot of a lot for her with this complex surgery seeing her you know father a couple of hours a day and then you know she was sedated but they were trying to lower her sedation so at that time i would go there but to make long story short you know it, she actually when she was coming out of the sedation she was angry because i was a safe person you know that she used to play and go to an area and feel safe and do activities but all this all that she had this huge procedure and we really didn't prepare her so then the chief of the psychiatry department said, Milano, you know, when I was uh, training in Canada, in Ontario, you know, if we have these people that will work with the children, that will prepare them prior surgery, and, you know, they also will help during the hospital stay, you know, I would like to prepare you more, but she realized that she didn't have the time. Then we wrote to the hospitals in Canada. They sent us to the Association for the Children's Care in Hospital, and they pointed out Boston Children's Hospital. So we reached out to Boston Children's Hospital, and Boston Children's Hospital told me that, well, you need to go to Willow. And before Willow said, okay, these are the application, and you need to learn English. So I went to Boston. <laughs> this was, a, it's a, was huge, you know, a huge, huge uh, project. And then, you know, I came to to United States a couple of years later. I went to BU, I did English, I went to, to Wheelock, and then, you know, here I am. That was quite the full circle moment for you, too. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in Venezuela working with Boston Children's, and now you live in Boston and work at Boston Children's. That's so cool. I am curious, what does the schooling process look like for child life? Is it a specific child life degree? What does schooling look like? I can speak to like my personal educational journey because I know everyone's is a little bit different in terms of what was required when they, they were going into this field. When I started um, my child life journey, I had just graduated undergrad at Suffolk University with a psychology bachelor's degree and then an undergrad and a minor in education. When I was going into the field, it was required that you needed your master's degree, um, which I believe things have changed now through like the Association of Child Life. Um, so I actually got my master's degree at Boston University Wheelock College with a master's in child life and family centered care. So people are always shocked when they ask me, like, what did you go to school for? I actually went for, to school for child life. <laughs> that is what's on my diploma. My program was about three semesters long, and it was filled with 600-hour clinical internship, which I was fortunate to complete at Tufts Children's Hospital in their emergency department, in their operating room. And then we all have to sit for a certification exam and recertify every five years with continuing education opportunities. Do you take the certification exam right away? Because um, I know like in nursing, you have a certain amount of experience before you can get certified in your specialty. I think I graduated from my program in January, and I think I took my certification exam in March. So I think I took it as soon as I could, mainly because I wanted to keep my knowledge fresh and don't forget everything I learned from school. Um, but I think it was offered so many times per year. 
I think maybe like once, like in the spring, maybe once in the summer. So a lot of the girls that were in my graduating master's program, we all took it in March. I think you try to take it as soon as you yeah. <laughs> that. And then once, you know, you, you receive your certification, ideally you wouldn't have to take it again because you're doing the recommended professional development hours right now, 60 hours um, within um, a five-year cycle. Um, so then you submit to the Association of uh, Child Life Professionals and then, you know, your cycle starts over again. So you do have to maintain it or you have to go and sit for the exam again to keep your certification. Does anybody else get, had a different journey through school or is it pretty similar experience for all of you? Yeah, I think for my experience, it was pretty similar in the sense that the clinical hours, it was the same. You had to accomplish 600 clinical hours supervised by a certified child life specialist and then immediately sit for the exam. I went to Wheelock College, now under Boston University, but the program was a bachelor's program. And then you could add on a fifth year to complete your master's, or you could go jump into the field. It was kind of like the game of life where you could choose to go to school or choose the career path or either way. paths do you want? <laughs> exactly. So after completing um, my bachelor's degree in child life and children and family studies, I jumped into the field right away. I worked at Franciscans for like six months as a child life assistant and then jumped into my rotation at Boston Children's Hospital. But I was kind of in the pre-master's degree requirement, which I know the Association of Child Life Professionals kind of goes back and forth like as the career changes. But the majority of child life specialists at Boston Children's do have their master's degrees. Yeah. Yeah. That was something I learned and I am glad that we're sharing that during the new grad nursing program chat we have a couple of programs that child life comes to teach and it's a really high statistic of the number of child life specialists who have their masters like over 90 percent and i think that that's a really that's something to be you know proud of and it's an accomplishment and that wasn't something that i i was aware of and megan you mentioned 600 hours of clinical rotation that seems like a lot to me. How long does it take on average for you guys to get 600 hours of clinical? So at the Wheelock BU program, it's within two semesters that you complete the 600 hours. So usually the breakdown through their program is a 400-hour internship um, and then a 200-hour internship. And they try and look at having kind of a more traditional child life internship um, experience where you might be in an inpatient setting or something similar to that. And then more like an alternative unit for your 200 hour where you may be using child life in a different setting, whether it is in like an emergency department or potentially in like a medical daycare, or there's a lot of kind of like really creative settings that child life is showing up all throughout the, the country and the world, even in some places, which is really cool. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a lot of hours. <laughs> the program does look a little different if you go to school in different locations, too. I know that there's um, an application process that goes out um, where you apply to internships independently throughout the country. Um, and you are kind of um, in more of like the independent trajectory as far as like navigating that process. So really, depending on where you go to school, the experience could be totally different. The requirement is the same for the amount of hours in order to sit for the exam. 
as well as taking core classes that certification exam requires. I'm forgetting exactly which ones, but different institutions definitely have different programs to kind of make sure students have the outcome in order to sit for that exam and kind of have the same core that you need to move forward into the, the field. I'm interested too to hear a little bit more about how it is that you got you came to children. What was it that drew you to this institution? I was very fortunate to have a volunteer position here at Boston Children's when I was still in undergrad. Um, I volunteered in the Hale Center for Families in the main lobby, and I was under the supervision of one of our child life specialists named Jill, who is still here today, who is so beloved by so many people. Honestly, I, I tell her to this day that she's my child life guru and that she got me here. I learned a lot from her as my volunteer supervisor. She taught me a lot about the hospital, taught me a lot about child life and child life specifically at Boston Children's. So I basically always said I wanted to be Jill when I grew up and grew up a little bit. And I really wanted to come here to Children's. So like you said, Steph, before I wanted to like have that full circle where I kind of started my child life journey. I wanted to see that full through. And I'm very grateful for Jill for my time as a volunteer. And it definitely is what brought me to want to apply to a position at Children's. Well, you know, when I was I was doing my internship, uh, I was lucky to go to MGH and at the Mass Pioneer and then you know, I was, when I finished my second internship, I was, there was a position available. I applied and I was so fortunate and I got the position. I was working in the day surgery, perioperative programs there, and also uh, in the pediatric inpatient unit uh, at Mass Pioneer. Yeah. So Lokisha and I worked together also there. We did. Yeah. And I worked there for eight years and, you know, it was one person program. I mainly covered the, the, the surgical area, the pediatric unit, but also with the help of a student, a lot of a student, we cover the ET, otorinolaryngology clinic and the eye clinic. So I always had the opportunity during this time to collaborate with uh, some of the colleagues from Children's Hospital, Boston Children's Hospital. We did, we had uh, a special event during the uh, Child Life Month uh, that was a host at the Boston Children's Museum that we called the Child Life uh, Month and it was the Teddy Bear Clinic. And we, different hospitals, you know, we, we go and host an area that we do you not know, according to the expertise so that each, each hospital has you know we for example from mass INEN we, we, we set up an operated room what is like a being uh, in an operated room like a having surgery so in, at that time you know a surgeons anesthesiologists nurses will come with us Boston Children's Hospital will host a teddy bear clinic. What is like I'm going to a doctor's visit, you know? So I had a lot of opportunity to collaborate with uh, Boston Children's Hospital uh, colleagues and see the all the innovative work that was done here. And also at the time when I came here to BCH 19 years ago, we was number 21 child life specialist that that number is like a three ball, you know, at today. So I was so, so 
lucky for the opportunity to come here and, you know, uh, bring my passion also about working in the perioperative program, uh, be the first trauma specialist that, you know, was able to, to work in that area, but having the support, having the support with the colleagues that you know, were in different areas, but they were doing a very, a lot of innovative work that were not done in other hospitals. So very lucky. Yep. I mean, I think everybody wants to, to work at children's, right? Like it was like, if you're, if you're, um, a child specialist that, and you were in this area, it was kind of like the dream, but I, um, like Olivia started as a volunteer, um, but I was at Tufts and knew that I wanted to pursue child life. So, um, after volunteering, went to the graduate program at Wheelock and, um, after graduating, I applied for a position in the cardiac intensive care unit and I did not get the position and I was super disappointed but I held my hair up high and I ended up working for a year and a half down the street at Longwood Medical Area Child Care Center as an infant and toddler teacher and so um, after being there a year and a half a position became available on the infant toddler surgical floor <laughs> and then soon they also added NICU. And so I applied and was accepted. And so I, you know, I always feel like God has a plan and you never know what that might be. So I felt like I was put in the perfect position to be able to bring what I had learned in those one and a half years of working with infants and toddlers to the infant toddler surgical unit. And yeah, that's how I got back to children. We're obviously very lucky that you held your head high. And I uh, came back to us because it um, sounds like you're doing wonderful work at Martha Elliott. Not to put you all on the spot, but just out of curiosity, does anybody know how many child life specialists are in the institution? I think it's in the 60s. I was going to say 60s as well. Our department, a lot of different professions fall under child life services department. Uh, we have a bunch of different talented music therapists, artists and residents, but I think for the child life specialist specifically, I, I want to say we're like in the mid 60s. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to gauge because, as Olivia said, we've got these therapists, artists, and residents. We have our Seacrest Studio friends. We have um, also our child life technicians that yes. um, support our department. 60s sound good to me. It's grown, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Switching gears just a little bit, but. Lakeisha and Malabras, I would love to hear a little bit more about what is it like working on a satellite location? It sounds like you both had experience at the main campus, um, and obviously you're in a satellite now. So what are the differences between working in, a, in the main campus and a satellite? For me, I think some of the differences are really resources and just awareness. Um, and I definitely can say that because in working at main campus for 16 years, I've rarely heard about anything that was being done in the satellite. I feel like um, a lot of what was highlighted was the work at main campus. And in working here, I, I do know that a lot of the clinical staff that work at main campus also work at the satellites, right? So they have a lot of uh, physicians who work certain days out in the clinics. So a lot of the care that patients are receiving at May campus, they are here. And obviously, you know, we have child life out here um, and at some of the other satellites too. So I think definitely uh, awareness, but also resources, obviously. I mean, sometimes like it feels like, like a little island, like, you know, you've got the main island and then you've got like the other little islands. And so 
Um, that can be challenging, but we are supported very well by our colleagues at May Campus. You know, if we need certain things, they're always thinking of us and sending us things that we might need. Sometimes it's a little hard because it feels like we're a little bit forgotten just within the institution. So like if there's celebrations going on and it's like, oh, free coffee down in the cafeteria. And it's like, oh, when do the satellites get? And again, I know it's like, it's a lot, right? Like it's a lot of planning. It's a lot of like, okay, how are we going to do that? But I do think that it's worth it to put in the time to think about those things because, you know, it's not just Boston Children's Hospital at Longwood. It we have Peabody and Lexington and Waltham and Dartmouth and um, Martha Elliott. So sometimes you just feel a little bit forgotten. And then again, a lot of the different accomplishments that are being done here, I don't feel like they, it gets as much face time. But overall, we are happy to be a part of the BCH umbrella. Um, I just think, yeah, a little bit more highlighted would be nice. We used to have a child specialist in Peabody too. So we have two child three child specialists actually at Waltham. We have one child life specialist at Dartmouth, and we used to have a position as well in Peabody. And we have two child life specialists here at Martha Elliott, and also we have child life a position for the early intermate. Right now we have that position, at, and we have a you know, part-time position for one of our Perdian colleagues that she taught the reach out and read. That's great. To your point, I do think we don't know as much about the satellite locations when we're working at the main campus, for those of us who work at main campus. In my role in clinical education, we often get that feedback that, oh, you're hosting this educational you know, session, but that main campus, that's not as easy for us to get to, especially if it's during a work day, like being a little bit more creative about how do we make sure that we are providing the same, you know, educational theories or the same equipment or the same celebrations um, in our satellite locations is something that is always a good reminder that we need to be doing and we need to be focusing more on. So um, thank you for sharing that experience with us. And out of curiosity, since you've worked at both me and at uh, Martha Elliott, if you had a wish list of something that you could have um, access to there, what is something that you think you would like to have? Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting though, because I can't think of really anything that's like tangible. Overall, I think the thing that I wish we either had access to or something, you know, that I like people to kind of know more about is just like the child life role in general, because I do think that a lot of when they think child life, they often think of the activities that we do or the toys that, you know, they see us utilizing. And, you know, there's there's so much that child life brings to the table. And it's so you know, why are we bringing, there's, there's a reason behind why we're choosing the items that we are giving, uh, presenting to the patients, you know, whether it's helping them to reach their developmental high skills, whether it's trying to build rapport, whether it's trying to um, help them feel comfortable and like cope with, you know, the things that they're going through. Uh, again, procedural support. We are so present at so many different procedures, you know, whether it's, you know, MRIs or uh, BCGs or, you know, pig placements, like all, just all those procedures that we are working alongside uh, the nurses and uh, the attendees that the, you know, and then it's fellows. So I think that's definitely something. But um, one of the things that I really want to ask for is um, a lot of People know that with our behavioral health population, it's growing and it's only going to continue to grow. 
And um, one thing that I know um, the hospital does uh, utilize are the precautions behavioral, behavioral support plans. And we know that this is an amazing tool that the behavioral response team has developed um, and that many clinicians are able to put these in, right, and put this information. So residents, attendings, fellows, nursing, social work, child light, all of us are able to implement this information and to provide a support across the institution, where, wherever this child is going, that these supports can be in place. The thing that we're finding is that because we're all doing our very busy jobs on a daily basis, it's sometimes hard to get the information to follow up with the families and then it put these um, support plans in. And so I have really been asking and trying to figure out if there is any funding. If we had a wish list to create positions where we would have people who actually are able to do this work, to call the families, to put in the information. Working alongside, obviously, where where possible, but it's just sometimes hard to do that. And I feel like a lot of our patients are not being supported as well as they could be because we, you know, don't have that. So if I had a wish list, I would like a, some positions created to help with some <laughs> Lou, you want to add anything? No, it's funny because my wish list that that has no bounds also included the behavioral health population. And that's instantly where my heart and where my mind goes when I think of endless money, endless funds. We have a magic wand. Let's fix something, especially here in the university department. We see the crises that's happening that everyone's seeing, everyone's experiencing, everyone's feeling. But in the ED, we are really, really seeing it. And we watch these kids, kid, and they're kids. We, the ages that we see, they're babies. These kids are coming in at their lowest points. Their families are coming in at their lowest points. And they're practically living with us in the emergency department for however long it takes to find them their best next step and their best, their best care in the future. My magic wand would be able to create more resources for these kids. I think it's one of our struggles as a trial life specialist in the ED is supporting these patients throughout their boarding process in the ED because we're so limited in our materials and our resources and what is safe for these kids. We really have to be thinking about the nitty gritty. We are constantly assessing. We are constantly going over each kid's care plan. How were they yesterday? How are they this morning? Well, how are they this afternoon? Because things can change. And we really put a lot of time and care into their admission. And I think my wish list would just be more funding to help these kids during their struggles. And more psych beds would really be incredible if anyone has the big budget. I think everyone's feeling that here at the hospitals. So we just see it so often and so firsthand. And we live with these kids basically every day and they deserve more of the care that we can offer. I feel so connected to that in the way that I feel like when you think about behavioral health, it can sometimes be a taboo topic to Absolutely. kind of like talk about or to like market for funding for resources, right? And 
I kind of feel similarly in the sense when we talk about the bereavements that happen yeah. in the hospital, because yeah. of course our focus is on helping a child and curing children and fixing the problem. But something that I think is so important is the legacy that children are leaving behind, even if their lives end. It's the care that was provided in those moments and the comfort that was offered in those spaces and the families that walk away from this hospital and have made connections while they were here. And this is such an important chapter of their lives. And sometimes I feel like it's really hard to talk about that too. You know, sometimes that can be a taboo subject, especially in a hospital when the goal may be not focusing on the end of a child's life. And so I kind of feel so connected to the behavioral health topics. I think we're seeing more and more bereavements happen throughout multiple each week um, in some areas. And there's such a lack of resources um, that can be offered for families or when we're creating memory making projects. Sometimes we are trying to do like an emergency order or try and increase our budget as best as we can in order to still create these meaningful moments for families. I just feel so connected to the fact that there are these two really big increasing populations that are really hard to talk about and hard to access ways to kind of market for the funding to be able to support these patients. But it's only increasing more and more uh, within our institution because the acuity is rising and the behavioral health crisis is just continuing. And I think that's on all of our wish lists and just like wondering how to talk about these things more because these children and families also deserve being honored in in their experience too. So yeah, that's such a good point about that. You bring up a really good point previous to the role that I'm currently in. I was actually a nurse in the emergency department for a long time. And one of my roles was the charge nurse. And I remember having this really powerful conversation with one of our child life specialists because for patients who pass during after hours, um, the child specialist that works in the emergency department is there the latest. So they often get called to do bereavement care yeah. on the units. And I remember once she came back and I said, how, how are you doing? And she looked at me and she said, you know, one of the hardest, I'm going to cry. She said, one of the hardest parts of my job is that I have to go up and do okay. these really hard things. And oftentimes I haven't had an opportunity to connect with the family because it's my first interaction with them. She said, but then when it's over and I've done what I, what I went up to do, I have to come back down here and act like everything's okay. And I have to put on the happy face and be the play lady for the next patient. And that can often be really hard. And so I just am curious, Megan, from your perspective, do you feel like when you're in those situations that you have an opportunity to you know, debrief with the team or take a breather for yourself? Like, what do you do for self-care after some of those um, tougher moments, especially in a nice setting? That's such a great question. And I'm so glad you were able to have that connecting moment because that is exactly my answer is I feel like we lean into each other um, in those moments in order to take care of ourselves. You know, sometimes leaving the hospital and being able to explain your day no one else really understands it. Right. Uh, So I just feel like there are just some crazy moments where you are in, you know, photographing a a terminal excavation while family's holding their baby and you're present with them in those final moments. And then you're celebrating a 16th birthday down the hall, you know, and 
gathering balloons and and marching in there to put on your best face and and make that moment special too and i think that the best thing that you can do for yourself too is just be patient and breathe through it and find ways that you can take space for yourself because i think whether it's a bereavement whether it's an escalation that you're helping with uh, whether it's a difficult procedure that has just been really hard to bear witness to or to help facilitate coping strategies we are kind of these sponges that are trying to be present with some really heavy emotion and so I think it's really important that we find even if it's five minutes to go take a breath or go sit down with the nurse that you were just in that experience with and say like hey can we just take a minute together I think we lean on each other often. Um, I also think we've gotten really good at advocating for more talking it out, you know, and finding ways to do that. I think for so long, we were all trying to keep it all together because we wanted to prove that this was the work we wanted to be doing and wanted to like not show the fact that these things are really hard. And I think right now and in the culture of healthcare too, I think we're all trying to say like, we have been facing years of really hard things, whether it's facing the pandemic in the healthcare setting or the acuity rising or these really difficult end of life situations. I think that we all have to honor the fact that we're walking with families as they're facing so much and that we need to take care of ourselves, even if it's a few moments and one strategy that I feel like is a, a tip that um, one of the chaplains gave to me was there's something ritualistic about washing your hands. And so, of course, Purell your hands all the time. But whether you go take a step into like to a sink where you can have privacy or you just like go into the hall and wash your hands in the sink. There's something mentally that I've utilized washing my hands as like a cleanse from the experience. So it's like a ritual that I do is like after an experience, I go and I take a minute and then I wash my hands and I take another deep breath and then I can walk into that next experience. And something about that really clicked with me. Um, and I thought that it was really powerful. It was a great tip for for that. But a big part of child life is we're always riding this roller coaster of these really intense situations and just trying to figure out how to support patients and families and make every moment about honoring that child, no matter what the experience is. And yeah. Megan, you speak so beautifully on this topic. And like I've always said, I've looked up to you in your work in bereavement and end of life, but I think this is something within our role that not many people are aware that we do. I mean, I know even myself, when I started in this position, I wasn't really aware of what bereavement was. I didn't know about memory making. I didn't know that we had this job. And it's something that I think all of us really pride ourselves on being able to provide such a special and beautiful moment for families and patients. And I think it's something that I personally have been trying to educate our ED team on since we don't see bereavement as often as some other um, units. But when we do, it's a traumatic loss and it's a sudden loss typically. And we are at bedside doing handprints, doing clay molds. 
But just like you referenced, Steph, that we get called to go to end of life upstairs on the unit all the time. And the teams on the inpatient units are really fantastic at providing a sign out on, hey, this might happen tonight. This is what we have done. This is what you should know. That kind of prepares us for the unknown because it is so extremely difficult to walk into such a heavy moment and not have the connection with that patient or family like their child life specialist most likely does. We're meeting them at their most vulnerable time and that must be difficult for them. And it's difficult for us, but we want to provide what we know that their child life team would have done. Just like you said, Steph, like it's hard to go from your busy unit on the ED. Let charge know like, hey, I got to get off the unit real quick. I got to go up to the NICU. I have to go up to 7BERT, 8BERT. And it's hard sometimes for like our teams, our staff and the ED to understand, oh, there's bereavements upstairs and that's now our job. We got to take away from the IVs real quick. The lack repairs are going to have to wait that there's a bigger picture thing that we are so, so heavily involved with. And that, that's something that me and a few of my coworkers have been working on is providing bereavement education to our ED teams um, and staff in terms of social work, docs, nurses, CAs, because like I said, bereavements can happen in the ED and we want all of our staff to feel equipped to help with memory making, help with um, all those legacy building activities and whatnot. So we've kind of started this initiative that we're working on to provide basically memory making 101 to our ED staff. We're hoping to do in services where they can, our ED staff can practice doing handprints on one another, using Play-Doh to test out how to do fingerprints. Just so our nurses, our CAs, our docs feel as comfortable in those settings that are so uncomfortable as we have felt in the past. I feel like Megan and Olivia have given such an amazing um, window into one or many of the hats that Child Life wears. And that's why I'm so happy to have this privilege to talk about the things that we do and the various different entities that we do, because I do think we work on different units. And so there's an awareness to a certain degree, but I really if I had a wish list too, would love for more recognition within the institution for what Child Life brings to the table. And we bring so many things. And, you know, they Megan and Olivia gave beautiful examples. So many times there's donors and special visitors that come into the hospital and they're donating money to the hospital and or getting publicity for the hospital. But what some people may not know is that Child Life is partnering with the trust to identify patients that are appropriate to have these interactions. And so a lot of people don't know that. And then also oftentimes helping to facilitate these interactions. So if there's the special visitor doesn't know what to bring up, the child specialist typically knows about that patient, what they are interested in and can help that conversation to carry. So I think knowing all the different things that we're involved in and collaboratively with the multidisciplinary team, I think a lot of areas do value what we bring, but I think more can be done within the institution to recognize what we bring to the team. I love that point because I think we are not by immediate team. 
they know that we are side by side with, with the attendees, with the fellows, with the residents, with nursing, with alcoholic social works, you know, ET, OT, and all of that. But not everyone knows that, you know, sometimes it's just it's a quick response. Oh, you know, we love child life. You know, we would love to play all day long and something like that. So, so I mean, it's, it's deeper than that, more all of the reason that we had mentioned. So the, the recognition, the respect, yeah, it will go along. I think that's a great point because as I'm listening to you all talk, I'm thinking about how often I've heard people either refer to our child life specialists as the play lady. And that is, a, you know, I understand why we, you know, might introduce you that way because to a kid, that's not threatening. You're like, oh, we're going to play. That's great. But I also think it kind of overshadows some of the harder parts of your job. And we're not giving credit to some of those more challenging situations by, you know, obviously it's a fun and playful name. It's a great way to introduce yourself. Maybe that's how you feel. But talking about this makes you realize, to your point, there are so many more hats that you wear as a child life specialist. There's so much more that you have to collaborate on or do that maybe doesn't fall under that fun title of play lady. Um, so I appreciate you all sharing your experiences and, and kind of shedding light on the other side of child life. Which brings me to my next question. I would love to hear a little bit about just thinking back in your, your years of experience, and I'm sure that you've had a lot of different situations that you've been involved in. What is one day or experience that really stands out in your mind as being powerful to you? Maybe we can start with Lakeisha. The thing that's sticking out to me has been more recent. As I had mentioned, when we're seeing a patient, we're often um, seeing them as they're getting their vital signs. Um, our office is very close to where vital signs are taken. So I'm often kind of doing informal assessments of patients and how they're coping. Um, and um, as I was getting a diversional activity for one particular patient, I just noticed that my observations whether he had some uh, cognitive and some physical delays. And so I quickly touched base with the provider, the resident that was going to be seeing him, and just said, these are some things that I picked up on. I'd be very interested to see what you think after your exam. And after um, the resident came back and said, thank you so much for everything that you shared with me, I also saw what you were seeing. Th these are the things that we're going to get that this patient set up with. And so it just felt like very validating. There are things that professionally we are picking up on. We're always doing assessments, trying to figure out, you know, where this child is, where can we get them to, like, you know, those type of things. And then seeing that collaboration and her valuing, again, what I had to bring to the table. And since then, this resident has not only checked in with me, but also has said, oh, I've worked with this patient and maybe I didn't meet them initially. Do you mind just stopping in and saying what you think? might be going on and if you have any recommendations. And so it's things like that, that like, obviously I'm here for the patients, the families and what I can bring to them, but also seeing within my team that they are also valuing what I'm bringing to the table. So that's definitely one thing that has stuck out to me more recently. I love that example of, you know, that interprofessional collaboration and validation. Yes. Thank you for sharing that experience. That's great. Sure, it's similar. You know, we have a lot of uh, patients also that come to the clinic just for basic, you know, immunization, drug culture, that. And sometimes they say, well, you know, you need to, to have, you have been having immunization for, through your life. But when you have, you are immunophobic, that is a step, you know, above in how we can help that child to cope with whether a little bit younger, sometimes with, you know, under two years. 
And now the doctors, you know, the um, pediatrician, they have seen a different outcome. When we intervene, whether, you know, we do pre-op phone calls or uh, prior they come here or we we offer some desensitizations, you know, uh, opportunities in person in the clinic. And I have been getting, you know, a lot of referrals to work with this population because they have seen the difference that is, you know, what would be a good age that we really need the child you know, to cooperate. It's not just like a force. It's not like, okay, you know, mom is going to holding you safely if we get this done, but when we do that, and, you know, sometimes take one visit, sometimes it's two or three visits, and, you know, have it there just to come to see, you know, me, to be with me, and we will work on some strategies, and then have it, you know, the child. It, I often tell focus also on not just that we are successfully, you know, because we got this child to have the vaccines or the, you know, the series, but also empowering them, you know, making sure that they, they understand that we are here to work with them, that we are part of the team, we are their team. This is a place that they can come and they, you know, they can ask for any support, they can express any needs, and we are here for them individually you know we are here for the parents but we are for the child and, and you know reassuring does like also you know your parents are doing this because they bring you to the best so also reassuring that that part you know it's not punishment and, and i know at that age you know when children are older there are no misconceptions but that doesn't mean that it's not a big deal when they are afraid of the needles you know it's a big deal for them in at that time how we help them to cope, how we help the parents, how we also help the team, like, a, okay, how we can help everyone to be, you know, successful on reaching the quad wall. And instead of just uh, continuing to schedule a nursing off uh, visit or, you know, with the attending, we work with them until we think that we will. And there is always a, an opportunity that the child might not be ready. Most of the time are ready. So we are being, our skills are being utilized in that way. We are being sick out constantly, you know, are in the clinic also for developmental, you know, sometimes they are sure that if the child may have, might be on the, the autism spectrum, but they know that through play, you know, we will maybe bring some toys, may do some interaction. Maybe we saw the child when they were having the vital, how they react and how, how was the interaction with the clinical assistant with us. So we are very fortunate. Just last week in nursing orientation, uh, one of the new hires shared that his child must have been in the hospital quite a bit. And he shared that his experience would have been completely different had childlike not been involved in the care, that it would not have gone as well, that the stress and anxiety of having to seek out medical care after those admissions would have been a nightmare if childlike hadn't been involved initially to prepare and educate and make those scary moments more tolerable, to your point, empower the child um, to be involved in their own care and recognize the importance of the care that we're providing. I, I just found his example so powerful. And I feel that way about our child life specialist, that you are so instrumental in making things happen and keeping the kids, uh, giving the children psychological safety when they're getting medical care. It's, it's so important. 
you know, and adding more to your example, a, a lot of pressure on the parent. One of our nurses, she was bringing her two years old and she said, my child is going to hate me after the vaccine. They need to have the COVID vaccine, the flu vaccine, and he's just going to hate me because he doesn't like the house. And she said, would you come with me? And I said, of course. I said, exactly. It was just, you know, doing some play. And, you know, I have a couple of tricks with me. And, you know, we, we talked, we did some preparations, some rehearsal. We did the sensory part, like how he may feel, you know, it, it, and again, did you know, to prepare for a two years old. So this time work, and again, work because of the, the time they have, the, you know, the opportunity to do with him, to, to do some rehearsal. Also, it was not just that word for the child, that the child, you know, was covering. He was like a, you know, the first one, like the word, like, a, you know, because he was distracted. We were doing something else. And when the second one, it's like, oh, what is this? Like, a, you know, he watched it, was checking. But also, what I was all proud of was the relief for his mother, one of my colleague nurses, you know, she's like, a, I can know. Believe it, like she sees it every day. Like I, and she say, "This is an insult for you because I, you know, we, we work with you daily." But I cannot believe it. But it's uh, the own pressure of being on the other side. So it's, it's supporting, you know, our colleagues supporting each other in trying to exactly to do what we love. Like uh, you know, to try to to reach out as much as we can through our day to make it yeah special. Thank you so much. Megan, I'm wondering if there is an experience that comes to mind for you. I feel like I tell this story because it's one of my, I think, a, a proud moment, but it's also kind of like the foundation of why I always just feel like it's so important for this work. It talks a little bit about like misconceptions that can happen and developmental understanding and how sometimes we act as like the Google Translate for different things that are happening um, in medical terms or just in life. And so I was working with a family and a lot of children were coming to say goodbye to a child who was end of life. And so I was working with cousins and siblings of this child. Maybe there was a lot of kids visiting, maybe ages three to like nine. And there was a lot of concern of like, there's so little, they probably don't know what died means. And so a lot of our work is being able to share some simple language in order to gain understanding and also just be able to talk about it with kids at different ages and developmental levels. And so we were in the family waiting area back with the cousins and the siblings and the a couple of extended family members who were in the waiting room with us. And one of the little ones said, oh, can we go to the window to see her fly up to heaven? I want to watch her fly into heaven. And another one of the kids said, no, she doesn't fly to heaven. Her body stays here. And then another kid said, just her head goes to heaven and her body stays here. <laughs> and so another one of the older kids said, no, her head stays here too, but her soul goes to heaven. And someone said, what's her soul? And so... I was like, wow, this is developmental understanding of this concept right in front of my eyes. And all of the adults in the room were kind of seeing this all unfold. And of course, there's a little bit of panic, like, oh my gosh, they don't understand, or some are not ready, or, you know, there's so many thoughts, or this is a scary topic. How do we talk about this? But it just showed the readiness that all these children, like, just needed an understanding and wanted to understand a little bit more. 
So that was kind of the exact place for me to be able to jump in and say like, hey, I think we can sit down and maybe read a book together about what this means um, and maybe do a special activity together and let's just talk about it. And so that's one of my favorite stories. Of course, it's it's sad and, and seeing kids trying to process death is something that can be really scary. But at the same time, we are creating a foundation of understanding kids are going to become adults and they're going to experience more loss in their lives. And so if we can create language to help their foundation of understanding, that's exactly what we need to do in those moments. And so that's just kind of one of those aha moments when you see it click for families um, and within yourself and be like, okay, yep, I, let's do this, you know? And so I think that's a moment that will always stand out for me in my career. Wow. Thank you for sharing such a personal experience. Um, Olivia, anything come to mind for you? Those aha moments are the ones that kind of resonate with you for a while. The stories that always tend to stick out to me in my career are the ones where I was able to tick all of my boxes of what I have learned throughout my child life journey so far. And I was able to kind of really utilize all my skills do all the things that I love so much about my career. Just kind of a quick summary, we had a patient come in with self-inflicted burns and I was able to collaborate with the social worker who is one of my favorite teams to collaborate with in the emergency department who we work so dearly close with, which is one of the main reasons it's so great to work in the ED is you work so close with so many teams. Um, so I was able to collaborate with social work and get the story of um, what brought this patient in. And basically, I was side by side with this patient throughout the start and end of their cure. So I was able to help with just talking through why they're here, their emotional state, emotional state of the night before. I was there to help with the medical side of what was happening thing with them, helping with bandages and assisting with the medical team for pain interventions. Then I was also able to help with sibling support, parental support. Mom needed time outside of the room. I was able to stay with the patient because mom didn't want to leave her alone. I was able to help mom talk to the two sisters at home as to why this patient is now here with us in the ED. So kind of like Megan said, providing that language um, for all developmental stages these siblings were a little bit older so you kind of look at at all realms of what this might mean to that age group and that's when there's that big emphasis from our career of child development she ended up getting admitted to an inpatient floor so continuing that here of signing out some really big details that i've learned about that family to the inpatient child life specialist that specific case, I was able to really do my job. And it's those instances where you really feel like I did something that made a difference in this kid's care, in this family's care. And it's one patient interaction, one day, I should say, because it did, it was like my whole day with her that really, really will stick with me in terms of like, that was my aha moment. Everything kind of clicked, everything I learned in so many different areas kind of came together in one dance in a way. And it was so many moving parts and it all came together. And it just felt 
it was one of those cases you felt like I did my job. And that's a pretty good feeling, no matter even the circumstances, like Megan said again, like are hard and they're sad. And it was a difficult room to be in for 12 hours, but you knew you were supposed to be there. Wow. Thank you again for sharing such a personal, powerful story. I just love listening to everybody's story. So thank you for sharing with us. So I think we're we're about time to wrap up, but I'm just wondering um, if anybody has any last minute thoughts on, you know, what are some of the resources you want to make sure people are aware of? How do people get in contact with you and just give you the opportunity to share those? I think the best way probably to contact us is through the Spectralink system. If you're in an area, you know, that's probably like the quickest way. If you're in an area that has a child life specialist, you can find your child life specialist under the role within the Spectralink system, kind of the little phone book that's inside of there. We also work in the child life services department. So there is a DL that is accessible through the internal email. And usually if something is sent out to um, a member within that DL, we usually help to kind of direct it to the right person. We're such a big team, so it can sometimes be hard to find out exactly who that is. And if you don't have a child life specialist in your area, but you feel like it would be a really helpful role to have, advocate for that position. You know, um, talk to our director, Beth Donegan, and really reach out and advocate because I think that we just continue to want to help patients and families and be as accessible as we can. As the hospital grows, we hope our team continues to grow as well. I don't know if you ladies have anything else. Yeah, I just wanted to say that we want to be able to provide our services to every single patient. That would be the goal. And, you know, there are only 60 some of us. So help us grow our team, help us make more of an impact and help us support our hospital as we're doing the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. I always like to say is like, as much as we're here to help support patients and families, we're also here to help support staff. Like we are a member of this big, beautiful team. We want to be a helpful member. We, we want to be a part of it. Let us help you. That is great. Continue to collaborate, continue to tutor, continue to you know, the collaboration. That's great. I just, um, I, I'll probably cry because I'm a crier, but I <laughs> want to um, thank you all for your time. And speaking from my own experience, but and hope you know throughout the institution, data role is so important and we could never get through a day without our child life specialists. And you play such a huge part in the care of these kids and they're so lucky to have you. And we are so lucky to have you. And I'm so sorry that I'm a crier. Um, um, but it, it, you were all uh, always my favorite people to work with. And I love collaborating with all of you on projects. And this has just been a joy. And I, really enjoyed hearing all of your stories and I wish you a very happy child life month and I hope your areas do something really great to celebrate all of you because you deserve to be celebrated every day so thank you so much for joining us and for your time today and um yeah thank you thank you you for having us yeah this is a great platform and we're very appreciative to have it This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.